most of my Airbnbs are priced in about the bottom 25th percentile of the market. And the reason I do that is because I want to them to be filled all the time. So like my occupancy rates are 90% or better for just about all my properties. Vacancy kills. That's what I've learned in this business. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Ethan Cook. Ethan is a real estate investor and Airbnb host in the Bay Area. In this episode, Ethan will teach us how to start an Airbnb rental arbitrage business and will share his strategies as well as his discoveries from being in the business for several years. If you're interested in creating cash flowing units in the Bay Area, then you need to listen to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, Contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Ethan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. All right. Uh, my name is Ethan Cook. I live in San Francisco with my wife and two daughters. And I run a full-time furnished rental business. So I do Airbnb rental arbitrage. That's super exciting. So how did you get started with Airbnb rental arbitrage? So I worked in corporate America for 25 years. I loved it for quite a while. And then it really just stopped working for me. I think as I got older, I wanted to kind of do things my own way. And what attracted me to arbitrage was my wife and I had been Airbnb our own home during family vacations. And that was an awesome way to earn extra income. And we would actually rent out our home in San Francisco for a week while we were out of town with the kids and end up making more money than we spent during our vacation. So that was mm-hmm. terrific and uh, got me really excited in Airbnb. Meanwhile, we had also purchased a couple of properties in San Francisco. And so I kind of got my feet wet as a landlord and learned how to fix places. And then when I got to this crossroads in my life about what can I do now that I'm wanting to move out of corporate America as a human resources director and make a decent income, I kind of put together the pieces of Airbnb, landlording, property maintenance, and how to scale a business. And I was reading Bigger Pockets quite a bit and came across folks like Al Williamson and Jay Martin and others who had scaled these rental arbitrage businesses, started reaching out to them, picking their brains, and realized, I can do this. I've got the skill set. I've got the desire. And then it really just took off from there. I started with a single family home about five blocks from where my family lives. So I knew the market, knew the area, very familiar type of property, kind of similar to my house. It was furnished, so I had a leg up on not having to pay for the furniture, and I knew what kind of rent I could get on Airbnb. So it was kind of a no-brainer, just a real easy transition to get it rolling. And since then, I've 
just continued by adding about a unit a month for two years. And so now I'm up to about 25 units two years later. So you started about two years ago? Yep. And you're doing this full time, right? Yes. Yeah. I haven't done any HR consulting in the last few months. I sometimes do that a little bit, but it's uh, mostly, mostly real estate now. So when did you decide you were comfortable enough to leave your full-time job to do this kind of business full-time? Well, I tapered off of human resources. So I went from full-time corporate America, 50 hours a week, breakneck pace to 80% HR consulting to 50%, 30%, and so on. And I would say it was actually while I was doing HR consulting, 80% that I decided I'm going to do this full time. And then I kind of used that ramp down period as a consultant to acquire more and more properties. So it was somewhat gradual transition over the course of about a year. And I was fortunate enough to be able to calibrate my work in the HR space while I was building up my portfolio. And I still do HR consulting, but it's I don't need to do it. Cool. And how did you find that first property? That was through Craigslist. And actually, in the beginning, I found almost all my properties on Craigslist. And that's the best source I've found to to find kind of mom and pop landlords who really like the value proposition of rental arbitrage. And how did you get that landlord to give you this experimental lease, especially if you haven't done this before in the past? Yeah, I kind of leaned on what would be appealing to me as a tenant in general. And I I encourage anyone to do that who's getting into this. In my case, I was able to say, hey, uh, my wife and I are working professionals. We've got a good income. Our credit scores are over 700. We live in the neighborhood. We really enjoy this community. And I'd like to use your property as a corporate rental. I'm, you know, I own investment properties, so I know what it's like to be a landlord. I'll offer you free property maintenance, which is a huge value add for the landlords and a big hook for them to rent their properties to me. And so it was really just leveraging what would make me a really good tenant and a good maintenance manager and also tapping into their interests and wanting to get, you know, high credit score from their tenant, free property maintenance, early rent payment every month through auto pay and just trying to address all their concerns up front. That's cool. I don't think I've heard anyone ever say that they offer free property maintenance. What does that actually entail? Yeah, I basically say, listen, any minor maintenance that your home needs, I will handle it. And I'll spend up to two hours of my own time and $200 to fix any individual problem. So I've fixed broken garbage disposals, clogged toilets, you know, lockouts, broken locks. I also upgrade their properties with smart locks and new paint if it needs it on the inside and shelving and hardware. And yeah, I basically commit to manage all the minor maintenance, which is like 90% of the things that tenants call you about anyway. And then for major repairs, if it needs a new water heater, if there's a flood in a room, I will actually coordinate the um, bids to find out how much is it going to cost to fix that, try to get it done really cheaply, and then share my recommendation with them and just send them the bill. Yeah, that's cool because you're kind of acting like a property manager for them, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I'm basically like a master tenant, but providing the same services as a property manager at no extra cost to them. 
Exactly. So not only are you like an amazing tenant with a great credit score, you're paying on time, you're not going to be uh, giving them any headaches because you're taking care of all the minor things, but you're also saving them money because now they don't need a property manager to take care of you. That's right. Yeah. And that's a huge selling point for landlords. And so what were some of the roadblocks that you might encounter when you're just getting started in this business? I think the main one is just coming up with the capital to finance the units. The most important things to get started are that you or a partner know how to talk to landlords and that you have a compelling pitch, that you have a sense of what to look for in a unit, and that you can land the financing quickly and furnish the place quickly. That's it. And so in my case, when I started taking on unfurnished places, it would cost me anywhere from like 7000 for a studio to maybe 20000 for a single family home that also had an in-law that was more like a two-unit property. And that includes here in San Francisco Bay Area, first month's rent, one month's security deposit, and then all the money that you need for furniture, kitchenwares, linens, etc. And where are you getting all of your furnishings from? I get most of them from Amazon, actually. And I've got a spreadsheet with a list of items per room and links to all of the items on Amazon and prices. So I kind of systematize it at this point. So I know it's going to cost about a thousand bucks to set up a bedroom. It's going to cost about a thousand bucks to set up a living room and maybe, you know, 500 to set up a kitchen. And here are the items I need and I can do it fairly quickly. And all this stuff comes to my house and my garage is a big, a big uh, warehouse of, of furniture and everything else. My wife doesn't particularly like that, but otherwise she likes the freedom. Do you have a handyman who like, comes to your house and takes all the materials and then puts it all together? Or is that you actually going to each place doing it yourself? I generally help out with that, but I hire a handyman and a couple of other friends who are available part-time as needed. So yeah, I basically just kind of over time tapped into my network of friends and acquaintances who are looking for part-time work, flexible to set up furniture and hang art and stuff like that. Did you find that Amazon, like the quality of the furnishings are pretty good from Amazon or are they like more Ikea style where they break after a couple of uses? Yeah. I mean, they are more Ikea style for some of the things like there are certain things that I still try to buy myself off of Craigslist. And those are things like dressers, because you buy a brand new dresser, you spend like an hour and a half putting the thing together, and it's not very good quality. And, and those are going to fall apart. The drawers are going to sag, and they're going to break after a couple of years. So I try to get dressers through Craigslist. I also try to get a nice sofa bed for every unit, because as one of my mentors, Jay Martin, taught me, you know, more beds, more heads, more revenue. And so every time I have a decent sized living room, I'll put in a sofa bed and I try to get those on on a Craigslist. So, yeah, there are still a few things that I'll drive my minivan around and grab some furniture locally. And if I can grab two or three things from one household, it's actually a lot less time and less money than ordering this stuff from Amazon and having to pay someone to assemble it. That makes sense. 
And like you mentioned, the more heads, you know, you get more revenue from that. Are there any other like marketing strategies that you use to make your listing pop compared to all the other ones? Yeah, there's a couple of fundamentals that make such a big difference. One is get professional photographs. When you hire a professional photographer, you're going to show your property in the best possible light. It costs about 150 bucks, even in an expensive place like the Bay Area. And I'll make it back on the first night rental. And then it'll just keep giving with more bookings. Another thing is I like to add some color to my units. I know it's very contemporary to do a lot of grays and a lot of black and white. And, you know, some people like color as well. I like to just add little colorful touches, like use small things like throw pillows, vases, plants, artwork to add pops of color. Yeah. And often I coordinate, you know, blues and oranges or grays and blues. Just try to kind of make it feel really warm and cozy. How about for the description or the title of the listing? Yeah, good point. Good point. The listing makes a huge difference on Airbnb. There's a guy who wrote a book called How to Optimize Your Airbnb. His name is Danny Rustin, R-U-S-T-E-E-N. And he's kind of the, the king of the Airbnb listing. He worked for Airbnb for a few years, and now he does full-time Airbnb consulting. And I read his book, and it basically taught me how to post an amazing listing. So that's the philosophy I use. And um, it includes, you know, using emoticons, using bullet points in your description, and really just highlighting the best features of the property. So emoticons, like you have a little fire emoji as part of your title? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like I'll, you know, I'll just give you an example, like Sun Palace, you know, big sun emoji, 2000 square feet, another sun emoji, easy parking, 10 minutes downtown, you know, so I'm really just highlighting like, or so highlights of the property. And instead of bullet points between those highlights in the title, there's some kind of emoji, whether it's a heart, a sun, a blue diamond, you know, a little fire. Yeah, whatever. But something that's catchy and quick and just kind of jumps out. And what do you do for your very first photo? Do you have a photo of like the living room, the outside of the house, the bedroom? Yeah, it depends on the property. Like what's the biggest selling point of the property? I don't think I have any first photos that are the outsides of properties because unless you have like a huge, you know, gorgeous landscaped yard with amazing, you know, flowers and a fountain and all that, like people really want to know what is special and unique and cozy about the inside of the place. So I pretty much always feature either the living room or the bedroom that shows the nicest. And what do you do for like a TV situation? Do you have TVs in every single room? Are you giving them Netflix or just a Chromecast for them to throw their own stuff up there? Yeah, I put a 55-inch smart TV in every living room. Some of the places don't have living rooms, so I'll put one in at least one of the bedrooms. I don't subscribe to a TV in every bedroom. I think some people really appreciate it, but to me, it's kind of overkill. And I have a bunch of Netflix subscriptions and you can put, you know, five or more devices on each one. It's like 15 bucks a month. So that's super cheap. And then I also sometimes put digital antennas 
on the TVs to expand the selection of local channels without for you know one time pay fee of twenty five bucks you set up a digital antenna and there's no cable cost so that the entertainment cost monthly entertainment cost is basically internet for about fifty bucks and then a Netflix account for another fifteen. Is there something that you think is pretty special that you do that some other Airbnb hosts don't do? As a host, basically, I offer really comfortable, nice accommodations at an affordable price. So, like most of my Airbnbs are priced in about the bottom twenty fifth percentile of the market, and the reason I do that is because I want to, them to be filled all the time. So, like my occupancy rates are ninety percent or better for just about all my properties. Vacancy kills. That's what I've learned in this business. So, I would have to put in more time and effort to make my listings more premium listings, and I'd have to be renting out nicer properties and spending more overhead myself. And that's just not my personal brand. I grew up very value conscious, and I'm very value conscious today. I'm always looking for deals, but I do like nice things. So I try to set up places that are nice, clean, comfortable, inviting, but they may not have anything super special about them, and that's fine because I'm typically getting them below market rent, and then I'm offering them at a good rate. Really trying to target longer term business travelers more than like the short term stays, although I do both. And offering them at a great price to the guests. Yeah, I remember that you said that you mostly have your Airbnbs in San Francisco, and from what I remember,、uh, Airbnb is not allowed in San Francisco. But you can get around that by doing these longer term stays. Is that your main strategy? In San Francisco, yes, I have about six places in San Francisco, and then the other twenty some odd places are mostly in San Mateo County. Places like Daly City, San Bruno, Millbrae, Hillsboro, and then I have just a couple in San Jose, based on a, a mutual friend of ours who's a great business partner, Elisa Covington. And so in San Francisco, I'm only renting out places for a month or more, and that is a lucrative market. But it's a you have a lot less flexibility as an Airbnb operator because you have to find people who want to stay for a month or more. And therefore, you have to really work to make sure that you're getting book kind of back to back bookings without too much vacancy in between. So I don't do auto book in my San Francisco places, and I do auto book in all my other places, meaning that the guests can just book automatically if the dates are free. With San Francisco places, I take in all the inquiries and I make sure that the dates are going to line up well with other bookings, so that I don't have a three or four week vacancy. Between two bookings and not be able to fill it. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there a specific way that you target those corporate renters so that they see your listing and want to book your spot? My main marketing platform is Airbnb. I have used VRBO Homeaway. I also use Faros, which is a great rental website for longer-term college interns. And I've tried a couple others. I've had by far the best hit rate and the most revenues through Airbnb. So I basically target those listings to business travelers. There's a number of checkboxes in your Airbnb listing where you can specify this is for business travel, 
And it's pretty simple stuff like do you have a big workspace where someone can use a laptop? It could even be a kitchen table. Do you have a bunch of coat hangers in your closet? Do you have extra linens? Do you have high-speed Wi-Fi? So I make sure that all of my units meet those minimum criteria. And then I will also highlight proximity to transportation. If one of my places is near transportation, proximity to downtown, if I'm within a 30-minute commute to downtown San Francisco. And that way I'm highlighting aspects of each property that are going to appeal to business travelers. Cool. So, but basically you put it on Airbnb and it kind of books itself. You're not actually going out of your own way to, let's say, random Facebook groups and having those guys check out your listing from those Facebook groups. No, I haven't done enough of that. There's definitely, I could do a much better job marketing to longer term corporate tenants, but I have been able to attract a lot of them through my listings on Airbnb because they're nice listings, because they're well rated, because they're cheaply priced. So, it's becoming increasingly popular now for large and small companies to just jump on Airbnb and find out what kind of long-term booking they can get for their employees compared to a hotel. And you get way better rates, particularly if you need two or three bedrooms through Airbnb versus a hotel, especially in the Bay Area. For sure. Every time we go on vacation now, we always use Airbnb. We very rarely use hotels anyways. Yeah. Likewise, likewise. I'm a huge Airbnb guest and I love it. I really enjoy kind of doing the market research in other places and providing hosts with feedback and getting tips from them. So yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you start an Airbnb for the first few weeks or even months, it's usually kind of slow because you have no reviews. People don't really know who you are. Is there a strategy that you like to use to ramp up those Airbnb listings so that they start snowballing and then they start running at their own pace? Yeah, I price it really well. I highlight that it's a brand new listing and that everything is brand new, you know, so brand new, 100% cotton spa towels, comforter, 10-inch queen memory foam beds. And I just highlight the niceness and newness of everything. Be the first to stay. And that really seems to help. Airbnb itself, when you're posting a new property, will usually give you the option of, do you want to offer a special 20% discount to the first three people who booked your listing? And you can just check a little box that says yes, and they will actually advertise that in your listing. And I think they somehow broadcast it out to people who are actively looking on Airbnb because it says in the option on the website you know, we will promote your listing to people who are looking if you check this box. So yeah, I definitely price it low, click the 20% box, and then really highlight the newness and the freshness of the property. And from your experience, how long is that startup period before you start seeing the real money starting to come in? Just a month. I mean, it probably in month one, your listing might only be, and this is in the Bay Area, every market's different, but in The business travelers market in the Bay Area, if you post a good listing that appeals to people and post it at the right price, a low price initially, then I'll post it usually two to three weeks, two weeks before it's actually available. Um, I'm in the setup mode and I post it with similar photos from another unit. So sometimes I've launched a listing And the day it goes live, it's booked. 
and maybe I got a one month booking the day it went live. And so it's booked out for the whole first month. Or maybe, you know, it books out a week after I launch and it's just a one week booking. But my first month, I'm always booking at least two and a half weeks, if not three to three and a half. Okay, very cool. And I know there's some definite seasonality that goes to Airbnb. Can you tell us what are the really hot months and what are some of the slower months? Yeah, it's just the straight up summer winter cycle. So summer is always hot from mid-May to early September. And the winter is always slow from early November to early March. And then, you know, there's kind of these shoulder seasons, March, April, May, and then like September, October. And what are you doing for pricing? Is it the automatic Airbnb suggested pricing that you use? I don't use auto pricing on Airbnb because I find it's usually too low, even for me. And I price my places quite reasonably. So I manually price my places, but I don't do it at the micro level. So I'm not paying attention to what are the local sporting events and concerts and conferences that I can capitalize on a three-day weekend because, again, my target market is long-term renters. So I just say, okay, I've got this three-bedroom, two-bath home, and the price for December, January, February is going to be just a little bit above break-even. Like maybe I'm only making 400 bucks a month after all the maintenance and utilities and everything. And so that place might be priced at $169 a month for the winter, for the whole winter. I don't mess with variations from week to week or weekend to weekend. And then by the time summer comes around, it's priced at, you know, two forty nine a night. So that's when I make nice profits. So I don't do micro pricing. I do macro pricing. And that makes it manageable to keep up to date on pricing 25 places. And what is your desired profit per unit with this strategy? I target at least at minimum 500 bucks a month per door for the small places, you know, the studios that I can set up in a week. And then I'll target at least $1,000 for a full-size home. And really my secret sauce in this area, which has really worked well for me, is that I look for single-family homes with in-law units. So the first one I found was in San Bruno near the San Francisco airport. And it was a three bedroom, two bath on top studio unit downstairs. And there was a fair bit of deferred maintenance. I rented it from the owners for 4,000 a month, which is cheap in the Bay area. I mean, that's what you'd normally pay for kind of a rundown three bedroom, two bath in a really nice neighborhood. But I got the studio in addition to that. And I told them I was going to paint the whole interior, add some nice new modern light fixtures, smart locks, and they love that. And I also told them if this goes well, I'll be happy to boost the rent by 400 bucks for next year because I think it's going to go really well. And they love that too. And the place just did extremely well. And I was able to net probably a thousand on the upstairs unit alone and another five, six, 700 on the downstairs unit. Actually, it was even more than that, frankly, because it was a really good deal. I think once all was said and done, I was probably netting 1400 upstairs and 800 downstairs, something like that. 
And there are some upfront costs, right? I put 25 grand into that place between all the furnishing and the painting and labor and whatnot. But I got that back in nine months, nine, 10 months or so. 10 months, I had all that money back. And then I'm just making, you know, 2,500 a month there on out. And so I, I saw a real promise in that. And since then, I've rented another five or so multi-unit properties where it's a single family home plus one or two in-laws. And what do the in-laws usually go for on a night-to-night basis? It's a studio apartment. So the market rent, if the landlord was just market renting it unfurnished, they could get two grand for it. And I'm probably getting an average of 2,800 year round. Maybe it's 3,000, no, about 20. 2800 and then I've got my utilities and internet and stuff on top of that. So yeah, that's about right. Yeah, it's a pretty good deal because you're getting both the main house and the ADU for just 4000 a month. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's really a great deal. That was my first one. Since then I'm spending, you know, 5000 5500 on a two unit place like that, but it's still giving good margins. Mhm. That makes sense. Is there a specific like location you try to target, like it has to be within 10 miles of a certain landmark, or what's like your ideal target for a, a place to rent? Well, the economy is pretty spread out in the Bay Area. So you've got just where I operate, you've got San Francisco, you've got the peninsula, down to Silicon Valley, and South San Jose, like that whole strip north to south, which is like, I don't know, 30 miles, it's all business and it's expensive real estate. So I look more for the characteristics of a great unit more than like focusing on a very specific location. And for me, the characteristics of a great unit are it's at or below market rent. It offers easy parking because people always want to park, even if you're right near a BART train station here in the Bay Area. It has a decent kitchen or at least a kitchenette, which is really functional. Believe it or not, I also look for a place that has good electrical capacity because I've learned that with these multi-unit places, often the landlords don't outfit them with good electrical capacity. And so, you know, you get guests in two or three units at once and they're using their little induction cooktops and their microwaves and hair dryers and you start blowing switches and So I've gotten very close to my electrician and uh, giving him a lot of business. But a lot of landlords, are they're willing to upgrade the units because it's a good investment. But back to the main question, it's really the units are at or below market rent with a kitchen kitchenette, easy parking. Ideally, it's close to public transit too, but that's basically it. And if you can find a unit like that, especially a twofer, you know, these like one of these in-laws, and you furnish it nicely, and you price it right, and you get the professional photos, and you put up a good listing, you really can't go wrong. It takes a lot of work, but I see very little risk in this business. And the reason I say that is because the worst case scenario, if the business travel market dried up, and I could not rent out my place for another night for a premium, would be that I just fall back on renting it out to a local person as a long-term furnished rental for the duration of what's left on the lease. And then I'm still making a little bit of money to cover my furniture costs because, you know, local housing in the Bay Area is always in high demand. Do you have any risk of your landlords taking back their lease once your lease expires? It's always a risk. It's always a possibility. And it's never happened to me. I've 
never had a landlord say this isn't working out. I've never had a landlord say I want to end the lease. I've never had a landlord say I'm going to do this myself because I want to make the money. From a landlord's perspective, they're getting a great tenant who's paying rent on time every month, maintaining the condition of the property at a very high level because every new guest that comes in expects that and great communication, good relationship, and takes care of the maintenance for free. So if I were working with business partners and landlords that were really business people and that wanted to actively manage their properties and maximize the revenue, then it wouldn't be a good fit. And I'd say, you know what, you should do this yourself. And I do help people set up their properties when they want to do that. And I do that kind of Airbnb consulting as well. I also do straight property management where people just want to set the place up and they just want to pay me a cut every month. But for the places that I have rented out and taken on all the risk myself, I make sure up front that this is going to be a win for them, that it's, you know, they're looking for a long-term tenant. And I've never had anyone renege on the lease or, or want to end it. And almost all my new units come from the landlords that I'm already working with because they give me other open units that they have, or they refer me to friends of theirs and say, this guy's going to take great care of your property, rent it out to him. Cool. Are there any other uncertainties that you could potentially be worried about? Like if Airbnb changes their regulations or if cities get into your business, stuff like that? Yeah, the regulations are the biggest risk. If all of the communities in the Bay Area between San Francisco and San Jose go the way of San Francisco, then there's going to be a glut of corporate housing on the market, a glut of Airbnb units that are only looking for rentals of 30 days or more. And it's hard to compete in that market because there's going to be an oversupply of units. So if that happens as an extreme, right, if all the little cities between San Francisco and San Jose go that route, then I would have to fall back on the long-term rental option where I'm really just looking to rent the places out to locals and the margins would go down significantly. And I would have to shift my focus to generate revenues in other areas. Yeah. I've heard some other strategies are to put someone as you know a live-in tenant somewhere on the property, and then they can be like the main host. I think you're still allowed to rent on Airbnb if you live in the property yourself. That's right. Yeah. If you live on the property and it's technically a single family home and you're the primary resident, let's say it's a single family home with an in-law, even if the primary resident is living in the in-law, you can rent out the whole house for as many short-term rentals as you want year round. And I do have friends who have taken that strategy. They basically enlist tenants as co-hosts for each of their properties. And that eliminates that regulatory risk unless municipalities were to pass rules that you can't do short-term rentals, even if you're the primary resident in property. That's unlikely though, because homeowners would be up in arms against it. People who really are, you know, homeowners as opposed to just primary tenants. I don't think it would go that far. So yeah, that's another good strategy. Mm -hmm. Were there any horror stories or challenges that you've encountered that you didn't foresee? Yeah. I mean, there's always horror stories when you're dealing with the public on a medium scale and you have interactions with hundreds of people every quarter. Yeah. So one thing, 
not exactly a horror story, but just a business setback was I had two units that were both cute little studios in this really nice, affluent suburban neighborhood, not too far from SFO airport. And in the lease, I had a parking space for each unit, each of these studios. And there's a big driveway. The owner, while they were backing up their car to get out of the driveway, basically ran the back of the car into the little retaining wall on the side of the driveway while they were trying to steer around one of these other cars in the driveway. Basically, a bad driver who messed up their car. They were the homeowner and, you know, called me really upset and said, Ethan, I can't have all these cars in the driveway. You have to get one of your tenants to move the car out immediately. And, you know, I'm so upset. I just ruined my, (laughs) you know, my Lexus SUV or whatever. And I wasn't in a position in that moment to argue and I did it. And now I'm offering one of the units without parking, but it's really hard to rent out because of the location. It's You can't even park on the street overnight. That's how nice the neighborhood is. So that was one setback. Another thing that happens maybe a bit more commonly that's happened to me twice in the last month. Again, I have 25 units, so I have very, very few complaints. But I'll tell you, sometimes an Airbnb guest, they'll have some problems in the unit. And they might be really legitimate problems, like the heater didn't work for two or three days or a week while the new parts were being ordered, or they found some mold on the wall while they were there. And that's scary, right? If you're living somewhere with your family and it gets mitigated, but then by the time they leave, it's come back and they're upset. And just a few days before they leave, they're like, oh, Ethan, you know, you realize we had these problems early on and I know you did your best to fix them, but they came back and actually our stay has been quite miserable And we feel like it's not been worth what we paid for it. And we'd like you to compensate us for the difficulties we've faced. And we're planning to write a very bad review based on that. And no one wants to be taken hostage like that. It's kind of like negotiating with terrorists. And I have a couple of times made some kind of payment because it seems reasonable and they did have some problems and maybe what I've compensated them already isn't fair for what they've endured. And I try to be as generous and understanding as possible, but some people are just, they're immovable. They're like, well, I know you gave me $500 already, but my pain and suffering and lack of electricity and heat for a week or whatever it was is worth $1,500. So please pay me another thousand dollars. And one bad review doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you're an Airbnb super host and you have to maintain a 4.8 star average, which means, you know, 90% of your reviews are five stars and 10% are four stars, someone gives you a one star review and that's a lot of five star you need to get to uh, make up for it. So it's a bit of a balancing act. No one likes to be taken hostage. And I've always tried to do the right thing, but some people will not be satisfied. So yeah, there's nightmare Airbnb tenants, just like you'll find nightmare traditional tenants. And the good news is with Airbnb, they leave quick. Yeah, actually, it's funny, because I found the same problem happened to my personal Airbnb. We were renting it out on a, you know, the whole house, and they're using for big parties and stuff. That's fine. You know, it was like a not like a 
frat party or something, but like a you know family gathering party. And you know they had some legitimate complaints, like it was too cold in the living room or whatever. They had some 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 random issues, and it just seemed that once we moved away from renting out the whole property to renting out room to room, almost all the complaints went away. Like maybe when you rent out the whole house, they feel entitled. Like this is my spot. I can do whatever I want with this whole place. But when they're all room to room, they feel like, oh, I shouldn't hang on the living room too much because there's other people here too. I don't want to disturb them. And it's just interesting to see that. Well, and not to mention that when people are paying room to room, they're getting usually a very good rate. And so they're, whereas they're renting the whole place, it's a family, they've got a lot of income, they have high expectations. And I think it's just a different demographic. Exactly. I feel the exact same way. So Ethan, if someone wants to get started with Airbnb rentals today, what do you suggest they do? Okay. Find a decent market in your area. Understand if you're focusing on vacationers, understand where the vacationers stay and what they're looking for. If you're focusing on business travelers, understand where are the big companies and even smaller companies in your area that are having new employees or relocated employees coming there to work. And and even just in general, where are the business hubs? Where are most of the business located? And then within, say, a 20-minute commute of those areas, just look for properties that the basic criteria that I mentioned before, easy parking, below market rent. I sometimes forget, drop these out, but Oh, decent number of bathrooms per bedrooms. I would never rent a four-bedroom, one-bath place. It's just not enough bathrooms. And a kitchen, and a nice kitchen space. Basic criteria. Make sure, especially parking in a busy metropolitan area, everyone wants their parking spot. And then from there, use Craigslist and start going out and meeting with landlords. My strategy, I give them a brief intro in the email It just highlights a few of my strengths as a tenant, doesn't say anything about corporate rentals, credit score, income, because, you know, high income, credit score, et cetera, and the fact that I love the area, I'm from the area, and then I go and meet them. And then, you know, just give your best pitch based on your strengths, what you can offer them. Ideally, you're willing to offer free property maintenance because that's huge, and Let them know, like, I'm committed to taking care of this property. I will screen the tenants for you. And my interests are the same as your interests because I will maintain this property at a very high level because every time a new guest comes in, they're going to expect that. And then, you know, sign a lease with a simple addendum to sublet and make sure they're authorizing you to sublet the property. And then, Look at the most successful Airbnb listings in the area. Do this ahead of time to figure out where are they located. Specific location is rarely as important as what they've done with the listing. So how's the place decorated? How does the listing pop? You know, what are they advertising? What does the title look like? How good are the photos? And you'll see, you'll see patterns in your area on Airbnb of, oh, this is what it takes to be a super host and to get booked 90, 100% of the time and to get awesome ratings. And so just copy, really just copy like what people on Airbnb are doing. And if you can find a special twist, like you do, be you are able to find these multi-unit properties at a good rent, then go with that because that's going to really save you on the cost side and allow you to reap more 
revenues and profits. So that's really it. I'm, I'm trying to keep it simple, but look for where the businesses are. Look for where the most popular, most booked, highest rated Airbnb listings are in the area and gravitate towards that. And then find the units that have all those basic criteria that I mentioned through Craigslist. Give your pitch to the landlord, highlighting all of your strengths and ask them a lot of questions about what they like in a tenant and are they managing the property themselves? Where do they live? Did they used to live here? And they'll tell you a lot of information like, oh, it's, I've been managing it, but I, you know, I've had a lot of tenant turnover and there you promised them, why would you like to sign a two or three year lease? Just find out what their interests are and play to those interests. Um, Yeah. And then just put up a great listing with great professional photos, offer a good discount on Airbnb and talk to other people who do this, right? You can even contact Superhost through Airbnb and say, hey, I'm just getting started in the area. Do you have 10 minutes to talk? You have an amazing Airbnb listing. And I'm sure uh, it wasn't so easy when you got started. Do you have 10 minutes to just talk to me about your success and what works for people in this area? Most people are quite generous with their time. You can also find people on bigger pockets, a lot of them who do this and message them and pick their brains. I believe that the risk is low, but for many people, the fear to act is high. And I learn a lot more by getting a foundational level of research and then diving in. And, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You rent a place for, you know, you drop five grand, you rent a place. And if you've got it at or below market rent value, at or below market rent, good location, et cetera, the worst that can happen is you've spent a couple of, you know, 1500 2000 on furniture, and now you have to fall back to renting it longer term to someone. And it's going to take you longer to pay back the furniture than it, you would if you had a really booming Airbnb listing. So the risk is low if you are willing to do a little bit of research and take action and learn from your mistakes. And if you start now, you can probably actually have an Airbnb in probably two weeks to a month, right? Yeah. If you're going gangbusters and you're investing a lot of time in meeting with landlords, hustling, checking Craigslist, doing research on Airbnb, trying to get that lease signed, then yeah, you could get a lease signed in the next two to three weeks if you're committing a lot of time to look at places and then get launched you know, two to three weeks after that, realistically. Yeah. Cool. So what's next for you? In 2020, my focus is really on fortifying my business and fortifying my health. And that just means from the health side, spending more time with my family, having a bit more sleep during slightly more routine hours, getting more exercise, um, enjoying the sun. And as far as fortifying my business, I'm really focused now on optimizing. And that means, yeah, fortifying my health and my business. And my health just means getting into a more regular sleep schedule, exercising more, and continuing to enjoy a lot of time with my teenage daughters and my wife. And then my business, fortifying my business means really streamlining it and making it more efficient. I do most of it myself. So it's time to hire a virtual assistant to handle all the guest communications, also to um, get some more help with accounting 
and look very closely unit by unit at the profitability of each unit and shift a few of the less profitable ones to long-term furnished rentals, like for a six or 12 month lease. So I really don't have to do much property management there. And then I'm also looking in the last next year to acquire a property in San Mateo County, which has a big plot of land and can be converted into a multi-suite Airbnb. I think a mutual acquaintance of ours, Tom Tran, has done this. There's other folks that have done it. And it can be very profitable if you take, say, a a two or three unit zoned plot of land and convert the property into uh, almost like a little Airbnb hotel with eight, 10, 12 studio suites in it. And then each guest has their own little living space and their own bathroom and their own kitchenette. And that really appeals to me because even in a very expensive place like the Bay Area, you can make that investment cash flow really well. So yeah, that's kind of my aspirational project for the year. Yeah, those guys are doing some really cool stuff where they're renting out every single room for 1500 to $2,000. It's amazing. All right, Ethan, so thank you so much for your time. How can people get in contact with you? You can find me on Bigger Pockets if you just look up Ethan Cook. You can also email me at efcook, C-O-O-K-E, at comcast.net. And uh, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. Or you can just Google Ethan Cook, HR Consultant, San Francisco. So uh, lots of ways to find me, and I'm happy to help. Ethan, do you want to give a shout out to your business that you're doing with other people now? Oh, absolutely. It's funny. I didn't even mention it. So my business is Bay Pillow, and you can find it on baypillow.com. And in terms of the kinds of partners that I'm looking for and can help, yeah, I'm always looking for landlords in the Bay Area who have properties that they want to rent out to a, a great tenant and get free property maintenance on. And also, if you're someone who wants to set up your own property as an Airbnb and basically just pay me to help you set the whole place up really nicely, get up an amazing listing, start booking the place out and just pay me a monthly management fee. Uh, I do that too. I enjoy that. So yeah, those are, and then, you know, finally, I am happy to talk to people who are interested in getting into this business because I really believe in giving it back. So those are some of the folks that I'd love to connect with. Perfect. All right, Ethan, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Sean. I really appreciate it. Cool. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. The first thing you need to do in this business is to make it easy for the landlord to say yes to you. Convince them that you'll take care of the small repairs and that you have the financial backing to be an excellent master tenant. Get professional photographs of your rentals and create a quality environment for your guests. If you need help creating a listing, take a look at what other great listings in your area are doing. Look at their photos, title, and description and just copy them. Follow these steps and you'll be well on your way to starting a cash flowing rental arbitrage business with Airbnb. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. 
That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.